We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1. Today we started a new series last Sunday in the book of Malachi um, called First Things First. And what we're going to see is that throughout the book of Malachi, God is speaking to his people and he's calling them to put the first things first in our lives on a daily basis from day in, day out. Like, what are we doing to walk with the Lord and put him first uh, in our lives? And so he's going to continue to press on us then that in several different ways. Um, But as we saw last week, before he presses on some things, first he wants to remind us and assure us of his love for us. And so last week we spent a verse and a half. Um, talking about God's love for us, Um, and today we're going to press into that a little bit further in verses 2 through 5. So we're going to cover four verses this week, Uh, so a little bit more ground as we're getting into Malachi, and um, we want to do that. Also, we're going to touch over in Romans chapter 9 quite a bit today, so if you want to put a bookmark over there or put something to mark that spot, we'll get to Romans 9 a little bit later. As I was studying this week and getting ready for the message, I came across a story about two soldiers. Uh, U.S. Army Master Sergeant Sean Clifton and Sergeant First Class Mark Wayner, And they served together as Green Berets in Afghanistan back in 2009. And they were kind of reunited to talk about their story. And they were telling the story that they were on this mission uh, searching to capture a Taliban leader uh, when they said things went horribly wrong. Sergeant Wayner said it like this. He said, we knew that he was there the day that we rolled out, and then we ran into a hornet's nest. As I rounded the corner, Sean the door, and the guy point-blank shot him several times with an AK. Clifton cried out to Wainer as he fell to the ground, help, help me, his eyes big as his life was leaving him. He laid there bleeding on the ground, close to his last breath, and his friend and fellow soldier and medic, Wainer, dove into action. He dove through the bullets, he pulled his friend to safety, and then he convinced the Um, medevac pilot to defy orders and actually land in the hot zone so he could get his friend onto the helicopter and lift it out for treatments. He was flown back to the U.S. shortly after that and after 20 surgeries and two years of rehab, Clifton finally was able to walk again and regain full function in his body. As they came together and they were telling the story, Sergeant Wainer said this, he said, there was a higher power definitely who was looking out for us. And then Clifton remarked, he said, it's pretty surreal. It really is to be here with you, my personal angel who saved my life five years ago. He said, Mark's obviously my hero of the day. There are lots of guys on the team that are. And Clinton said, he's forever grateful for his friend. And he praises his friend because he saved his life when hope was lost. That's exactly what God did for us. But it wasn't through bullets, and it wasn't through a helicopter. It was simply through his divine love for us. And that's what we want to look at today, to get our eyes on the love of Christ, the love of God for us, and be reminded today that great is the Lord who saves me by his amazing love. Great is the Lord who saves me by his amazing love. So look at verse 2, Malachi chapter 1. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. First point this morning is this, that God's love 
is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. I don't use that word lightly. I know that that can be overused at times, but I want you to see that that's true of God this morning in this text. He starts off, he says, I have loved you. And we talked about this last week, and then the people respond, okay, great, how? Really, God, how, how have you loved us? And so God's going to, use the ne- going to speak through the next few verses to explain to the people, this is how. Let me show you exactly how I loved you. I loved you before you ever existed. I chose to love you before you had done anything right or wrong, good or bad, before you ever took a breath. I chose you. Chose to love you, he says. And he does that by pointing them back to an example in their history. He said, is not Esau Jacob's brother? That's all he had to say for the Israelites to immediately remember the story of their forefather, Jacob, and his brother Esau. So just to kind of paint the picture again, last week we talked about this a little bit, but it starts all the way back with Abraham, right? God calls Abraham to follow him, promises to make him into a great nation and to bless his family and to use him. And out of that promise, Abraham has a son named Isaac who carries on the family line. And then Isaac has twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, Esau is named first here because he was the firstborn, right? And by the firstborn in that time, by custom, he would have received the birthright. He would have been the one who should have been the heir to the family, who got the promise and the covenant and got to carry on the family line. And yet, Scripture tells us that before they were ever born, God chose Jacob to be the one to carry on the promise. He chose to give Jacob the covenant line. He chose to love Jacob with the covenant love of God. Not because Jacob had done anything to earn it or deserve it, but simply as an expression of God's love and mercy towards him and towards his family. And so by choosing Jacob for this special covenant love, this special promise, by choosing Jacob, that means he didn't choose Esau. And Malachi here kind of puts it in language that maybe is a little difficult for us. He says that Esau I have hated. Not hated like in, in like a human emotion kind of way. It's not like he was picking favorites here. But he was saying, I've, I've chosen to love Jacob with this divine covenant love and call his family to myself but not Esau. And sometimes that's kind of hard for us to swallow because we're like, that doesn't seem like that's quite fair. What's that really mean? Well, Paul actually helps us really understand this well over in Romans chapter 9. So if you've got your Bible there, flip over to Romans chapter 9 real quick and look at verse 10. Paul says this, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... So Isaac and Rebekah, those were the parents of Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So he actually quotes Malachi right here, and he's explaining what that statement means. That God chose Jacob over Esau for the covenant line. Now, Paul, again, he clearly says here it's not based on their behavior. 
right? He says they hadn't done anything good or bad. Because honestly, if you look back at their stories, both of them were train wrecks. I mean, they were. They were messed up. Esau was prideful and blasphemous and arrogant and didn't care about his family, didn't care about his family's faith, wanted to go make his own way. Jacob was a liar and a cheat and deceitful, and neither one of them deserved God's love. Both of them deserved God's hate, his wrath for their sinfulness. But because God is faithful, he chose to keep his promise to their grandfather Abraham through the line of Jacob. And so God, even though he was in, Jacob was in sin, God pursued Jacob and called him to repentance. And eventually Jacob surrendered his life and surrendered his family to love and to follow the Lord. But Esau... His brother chose to continue to reject God, to rebel against God, to disregard his father's faith and legacy, and led his family into wickedness and idolatry. So this story here in this scripture, it starts to lay the foundation, it starts to to lay the early groundwork for what we call the doctrine of election. So I want to talk about this a little bit this morning, just kind of explain some things, and then maybe answer some questions about it that a lot of times people struggle with, okay? So first of all, from the very first humans that were ever created, Adam and Eve, every person since them, except for Jesus Christ, have chosen to sin against God, right? They chose to eat the apple or the fruit or whatever it was, and they started the whole thing. And then ever since then, every single human has chosen to sin against God by rejecting him, by rejecting his rule in their lives, by turning away from him. And in our flesh, the Bible tells us that none of us seek God. That because of our sinful bent, none of us naturally pursue after the Lord. In fact, most of the time, what we really want to worship is ourselves. What we want. We want to be on the throne. And so the doctrine of election says that because of that, because we will never seek for him, that God is the one who has to make the first move. He has to pursue us first. He has to move towards us and love us first while we're still in rebellion against him. And so he comes and he loves us and he calls some of us to repent and to return to him so that he can save us from his wrath, so that he can save us from the punishment that is due to our sin. punishment that we deserve. Now, when we talk about this doctrine of election, a lot of people struggle with several questions. So let me throw a couple of them out there and let's address them with scripture this morning. Not just what Micah thinks, but let me give you some, some verses that you can read and study this week as you ponder these things, okay? Number one, isn't that unfair? Isn't it unfair that God only calls some people to love him and to come to salvation? Well, interestingly, Paul actually addresses that in the same chapter that we were just reading in chapter 9. So if you still got Romans 9 open there, look at verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name may be, might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul's answer to that question is simply no. Actually, it's not unfair at all. Because you know what? If we really wanted things to be fair, I know a lot of times we're, we're all about fairness these days. If we really wanted things to be fair, fair would be that all of us go to hell. Because we have all sinned against God. That's what we deserve. So if we want God to be fair, then none of us are getting into heaven. And so Paul says, no, it's not unfair. Actually, it's because of his mercy, because of his love, that he elects to serve, to save some from that wrath so that, this is the important part, so that his glory might be displayed not only through his justice, but also through his grace. See, we have to understand that God isn't one-dimensional. God is both a God that is just and right and has, is righteous and has to deal with sin, and he's also a God who is loving and gracious and merciful. And he has to reconcile those two things together. And he does that through the doctrine of election. Second question that that leads to oftentimes is, okay then, if God is the one choosing then how am I responsible for sin? Right? Like, how is sin on me? If God is the one who chooses who he's going to save and who he doesn't save, then how is it my fault? And how, why do I have to go suffer in hell if he chose not to save me? Well, again, Paul, being the great apostle that he was, gave us the answer right there in Romans 9. Look at verse 19. He says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand? For glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. See, God, he does, he does not elect to save all mankind from their sinful choices, but he also is not the one who made those sinful choices. That's still on us. That's not his fault. We're the ones who choose to rebel. We're the ones who choose to disobey the God of the universe. And however, in the midst of that, God is still patient with us. He's patient with our rebellion, and he endures our sinfulness in order to be able to save some and to be glorified by their redemption. In order for some to receive the loving relationship that God created us for, he has to allow others to reject that same relationship. Third question then. 
So if all that's true, so then are we all just puppets in God's cosmic story? Is he up there just pulling the strings on us? Let's look at Acts for this one. I'll have this one on the stage for you. I'll have this one on the screen for you. Acts 17. We're not puppets, but we have to remember we are acting on his stage. Look at Acts 17, 25, 26. It says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. It all comes from him. You would not be here. We would not exist if God did not give us life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So God, in his divine creation, he gives us certain periods, certain boundaries in which we get to live, right? And he sets the stage for our lives, and then we get to make choices within those parameters, We can choose to love and honor and worship him. Or we can choose to reject and rebel and worship ourselves. He allows us to choose because without choice, we couldn't really love him. See, without choice, it's not love, it's coercion. Think about kidnapping or human trafficking. That's not love. Because it's forced. Love requires choice. That I get to say yes or no. And so to that end, we see several verses also in Scripture that point to the ability that God gives us to choose salvation in Christ. Let me give you some of those. John 5.43. It says, I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. Implying that we have the opportunity to receive him. That we have that choice and yet we reject it. Or Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God is just and so he would not command us to do something that we're not capable of doing. So if he commands us to repent, that means that's our choice to repent. Or 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that, but we still have to say yes. It's still a choice on us that we have to make to come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet, in our sinful bent, in our flesh, we'll never make that choice on our own. And so God comes to us first. He moves towards us first and chooses to love us so that we can have the ability to love him back. And so we come to this conclusion that salvation, in Scripture, salvation is actually the combination of God's electing love and man's responsive choice. It's kind of like this coin. I have a quarter here, right? And so I'm just going to get a little help this morning. What's on that side of the coin? Okay, got Washington's head. What's on that side of the coin? The eagle, right? Two sides of the same coin. 
God's electing love and our responsive choice are two sides of the same coin of salvation. And both sides are necessary. If one of the sides of this coin was blank, would it still be a legitimate quarter? Could I take that down to the bank? Would they take that money? No. It would be a fake, right? Just like with salvation, without one or the other, without God's electing love or without our responsive choice, it's less than biblical salvation. And what's hard for us is just like with this quarter, if I turn it on its side, it's impossible for me to see both sides of the coin at one time, isn't it? Or at least really difficult. Likewise, in this life with our finite minds, it's really, really difficult for us to see and understand fully how God's sovereign love and our responsive choice come together and make sense. But the Bible says that they do. Just like the two sides of this coin come together on the inside, unseen, to form a coin. God's electing love and our responsive choice to that come together to save us from sin and to give us eternal life in God. God unconditionally loves me and desires that I receive that love through faith. It's both and. He unconditionally loves me before I do anything, before I was ever born. And then by faith, I can receive that love and be saved. So the first thing we see in the text is God's unconditional love here is an example through Esau and Jacob. Secondly, look at verse 3. It says, But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Point number two, God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. So he's talking here about Edom. Edom was the country, the people that were the descendants of Esau. Or they came from his line. And, and he calls them here the wicked country. How would you like that to be your nickname from God? Right? The wicked one. Right? That's not great. And if we look back at their history, if we look at back at what happened, we see why he says that. Right? He, it, over the years, the nation of Edom had made choice after choice after choice to reject God, to worship idols, to walk away from the God of Israel. They were known in the region for their greed and their pride and their violence and their treachery. And through the years, God had been patient with them. For many years, he had been waiting on them to repent and to return back to him, but they would not do it. And so eventually, he brought his judgment and his wrath upon them. As he says here, laying waste their country. And if we look back at the history books, we know that that was at the hands of the Nabataeans who came in and displaced them and took over their land. However, they did not respond to God's discipline with Repentance. They just doubled down on their pride. They said, oh, God's going to destroy them. We will rebuild. We'll rebuild the ruins. We can do this. God can't stop us. He responds, but the Lord of hosts, 
He doesn't use that title a lot. When he does, it matters. The Lord of hosts, the almighty God of infinite power with angel armies, he says, no. No, you won't. He says, you may rebuild, but I will tear down. You see, friends, you can't escape God's justice or God's wrath without repentance. It's the only way. It's the only way we're getting out from underneath the wrath of God is through repentance and faith in Jesus. So let's talk just a moment this morning about God's wrath, because I know that's not a real popular topic these days, and not a lot of churches will touch on it, but I think it's important. God's very clear here in the text. We're going to see more of it before we get to the end of the book of Malachi. Three things I want you to see about God's wrath this morning. Number one, God's wrath is intense hatred for sin. It's intense hatred for sin because it violates his very essence. It violates his holiness, the core of who God is. It's, we have to understand our sin is a personal affront to God and to his holiness, to his character. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, God hates sin and he hates those who participate in sin because when we're doing that, we suppress the truth. We lie about who he is. We refuse to worship him as God and we do our own thing and go our own way. That kind of wrath from God is oftentimes hard for us to swallow. I can see it on your faces this morning. Because we always want to think about the God of mercy. Especially if we're the ones sinning, right? Then we're like, God of mercy, please, yes, right here. But if somebody else is sinning against us, then we're like, all right, God of wrath, all right, God of justice, take care of them right now. Because deep down inside, if we're really honest, we know that sin is wrong. And that it violates God's perfect ways. It violates His holiness. It violates the way things are supposed to be. We feel that. So God's wrath is intense hatred for sin. Number two, God's wrath is just... Because sin is repulsive, rebellious, and must be reconciled to his righteousness. Psalm 711 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day. God never takes a day off, right? He's always holy, he's always righteous, he's always just. He is the perfect judge and he is rightly repulsed by our sin and by our rebellion against him. And therefore, he must reconcile our sin with his righteousness. And that comes through punishment. That comes through wrath on sin. 
So his wrath is intense hatred for sin. It's just because of sin. And number three, God's wrath is still real for us today. Still real for us today. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. If we remain unrepentant in our sin, then we remain under the wrath of God. And yet, it is precisely the reality of that wrath that shows us His great love for His people. Because, yes, He's a God of wrath, and His wrath still applies to us today, but He is also a God of mercy. And His mercy still applies to us today as well. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with us in our sin. He doesn't mete out His wrath immediately, right? He's patient. He gives us opportunity to repent. And He makes a way for us to be saved. This is foundational to all that we are and all that we believe is the gospel. That yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are rebellious. Yes, we reject God and we deserve His wrath. And yet God in His mercy and in His kindness sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to be a man like us, to walk this earth in a perfect and sinless way, and then to go to the cross and die a sinner's death. To go and to take the wrath of God upon Himself and to pay that price for our sin so that we don't have to. And he died in our place, and he went to the grave, and three days later he rose back to life to prove that he was God. And he tells us, if you will repent of your sin and believe in me, you can be saved. You can be saved from the wrath of God because I've already paid for it. If you'll believe. It's like a mother who knows that her son has committed murder. But she claims that it was her so that she can take the punishment. She knows that he's guilty. She knows the judge is just and he's going to hand out a punishment. And to show her son mercy, she willingly takes the wrath upon herself. That's what Jesus did for us. He paid what was required so that we could be set free. So we could receive mercy instead of wrath. God's wrath is just, which is why I need 
his mercy. You can debate it. You can try to challenge it. You can say you don't believe in God or you think his wrath is unfair. You can do all those things. But at the end of the day, time will show God's wrath is just and it is coming. And that's why every one of us needs his mercy through Jesus Christ. His love is unconditional. It's not based on what I do. His wrath is just, and it's been satisfied in Christ. And then lastly, look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Number three, God's reach is limitless. God's reach is limitless. He says, Your own eyes shall see it. Your, your eyes shall see God's wrath, God's judgment on those who reject Him, on those who rebel against Him. You shall see the suffering in the world due to sin. You shall see the pain that comes upon those who deny the truth and dishonor the Lord of hosts. He says, you shall see it. God's reminding them that, hey, I'm not just the God of Israel. I'm not just the God of Judah, I'm God over all creation, and you see it in the fact that all mankind is accountable to God for their sin and for His wrath. All peoples, all places, all nations, no one is beyond the reach of God's hand. No one's escaping this. No one's getting out of it. And so he says, when you see my wrath in the world, you shall say, great is the Lord. What? Like, why, 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 why would we worship? Like, God, yeah, get him, God. Like, I'm worship God who's, who's going to smite that person, right? Like, why would we worship God for his wrath? Why would we say, great is the Lord? Not because of their punishment, but because their punishment reminds us of our grace. That I deserve the exact same thing. And it's only by the grace of God that I'm not receiving it. That's why we cry out, great is the Lord. When he could justly and rightly give us the same wrathful punishment he chooses to love us unconditionally and call us to his grace. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That's what he says. Which is great news for us because if, I don't know if you noticed, but most of us in this room, we're beyond the border of Israel. Okay? We're not Jewish. Like, we're outside of that. And so thank the Lord that it's not just them. He doesn't just love the Jews. He loves all people and all nations and tribes and tongues all across the globe. His love and His grace is limitless and it reaches His elect no matter where they are. And we see evidence of God's love continuing to pursue people all over the world. We've seen it in our own church over the past several weeks. We talked about a new church plant in California that's part of our network that's reaching people with the gospel. We talked about feeding centers in Nicaragua where they're feeding these families and meeting their needs so they can then teach them about Jesus. An orphanage in Romania who's caring for so many who has no one to love them and care for them. 
a refugee camp in Ukraine. Not only giving people a refuge from the war, but giving them the refuge of Christ. A house church in the Middle East continuing to worship through the threat of persecution. Or an urban outreach ministry in Memphis taking the gospel into the neighborhood of kids who can't get to a church. This is God. His reach is limitless. And it reaches everyone, everywhere. And so millions of people, us included, get to declare, great is the Lord. We have seen and we have tasted His amazing love for us. And so we worship. Great is the Lord who saves me by His amazing love. He's great because He gives us life and breath. He is great because He brings justice on the earth and He rights every wrong. He's great because He chooses to love us when we are undeserving of His love. He is great. And we will worship through his amazing love. Stand with me. Heavenly Father, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you are great among the nations. Thank you for choosing to love us and to call us to yourself. Thank you for not leaving us dead in our sin and in our trespasses, Lord, destined for wrath. Father, we are in your presence this morning. We love you. We believe in you. We worship you. Great are you, Lord. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Jesus.